Now this evening we are continuing a study of Mac. Uh, we are in chapter 8. Uh, you need no reminder that Mac is uh, one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the beginning of Mark, when we started looking at Mark, we made a point of reminding us that Mark is writing this record to followers of Jesus facing great persecution in Rome. Many are living underground, fearing for their lives. Many have lost fellow believers. They have sacrificed family and wealth for Christ. Some, perhaps in the middle of such great suffering, are now beginning to doubt, perhaps, and they are asking, is Jesus still worth dying for? And Mark's answer to this question, while he himself is in Rome, uh, being mentored by Peter, perhaps Peter has gone to glory now, uh, Mark's answer to encourage these believers, these believers in Rome uh, is to really tell, write this, the pamphlet for our times, as Mark is called, to write this book of Mark. To show that Jesus is worth it because of who he is and what he has come to do. So that's what this book is intended to show us. Who is this Jesus and what has he come to do? And as we've been going through Mark, we've reminded ourselves, and we should again, as we come to the middle of Mark, reading chapter 8, that the book is divided in three parts. Mark 1 to 8 is the ministry of Jesus in the province of Galilee. Mark 8 to 10 covers the journey to Jerusalem. And Mark 11 to 16 is Jesus in Jerusalem, covering his suffering and his resurrection, which we'll look at later. We are now at the end, after, in this 59th sermon, at the end of Jesus' ministry in the province of Galilee. At the end of the first part of Mark. Having studied eight chapters, Mark is confident that we now know who Jesus is. He said that the gospel was about at the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, after eight chapters, Mark is confident we know who Jesus is. And so the time now has come for the first exam, as it were. The question will be posed by Jesus directly. Who do you say I am? Based on the last eight chapters. That is a quick question that Mark wants us to consider this evening as we come to Mark 8, verse 27 to verse 38. And I would summarize these verses that the key lesson of these verses is that true followers of Jesus know and confess Jesus is the Christ. True followers of Jesus confess Jesus is the Christ. This is the main point we are looking at this evening, and I'll just try and show you how this passage helps us to see that truth. So look with me to verse 27 there. Uh, this morning, you remember we were in Bethsaida, right, with the disciples, and now they are on the way to Caesarea Philippi. We'll say more about Caesarea Philippi later. And as they are going there, this is 25 miles north from Bethsaida, and as they are walking there, Jesus is walking around the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and as he's walking around there, he asks his disciples an unexpected question. Let's look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages 
of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? Now, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Asking people, who do you think I am, right? We don't usually ask um, people that question. Who do other people think I am? Oh, we do actually, don't we? Often politicians are interested in asking what the public thinks of them. Uh, there are some leaders who constantly want to know, you know, what, what is the vibe in the office about my leadership? What are people saying about me? You know, politicians get really, you know, focused on that. They are focus groups and all sorts of things, trying to know what people make of their leadership and do people think what they think they're up to. Uh, they want to know the public, the word on the street about them. Well, that is not Jesus. Jesus is not trying to check his poor ratings, right? He's asking this, he already knows what people think about him. He's asking this question actually for the benefit of the disciples and us as we consider who Jesus is. He wants them, the disciples, and us to know that this is the most important question we can ever ask in our lives. Who is Jesus? And no one can be a Christian without answering that question clearly. That question literally determines heaven or hell, life with God or, or life with Satan, so to speak. And so all of us are here this evening, we need to give a clear answer to that question. And most importantly, if we already are trusting in Jesus, we know who Jesus is, our Lord expects us to know how people in our lives answer that question. I couldn't help but notice that Jesus expects his followers to know the word on the street about him. He expects his followers to be in touch with the culture of the day. Jesus does not expect his followers to live around him like some sort of cult or monastery where you have no contact with outsiders, right? Followers of Jesus have a life outside church. They have non-believing friends. They spend time with their neighbors. They greet people in the marketplaces of Galilee. That's the community Jesus is building. And it's a community he expects us to be here in Bexley Heath. This is a challenge to us, isn't it? Living in a culture where we no longer invite our neighbors to our summer barbecue. We can never remember the last time we invited neighbors for our barbecue and we can remember when they last invited us out. We live in a culture where we never enter other people's houses for coffee. I have to say, on my street it's a bit different. I have gone into houses, I've been invited, I'm giving out flowers to entire house. But by and large, in our culture, we don't know our neighbors very well. It's like, how are you? How is the weather? And we move on. No. That's the culture we live in. UK 2019. Jesus expects us to be countercultural on this point. Jesus expects us to know people in our lives, to know them well enough to give an answer. Who do those people think Jesus is? You see, we cannot lead people to... Jesus, we cannot lead the spiritually blind, we cannot lead them to Jesus unless we are willing to hold their hand and bring them to Jesus. Jesus is challenging me here, isn't he? He's saying, Chola, do you know your neighbor, what your neighbor thinks about me? Are you even bothered what your neighbor thinks about me? 
He's asking you this evening, isn't it? How do you know what your colleagues at work think about Jesus? Are you taking your time to sit down with them and pose that question? As you are walking down the street and you see the homeless man, have you ever been bothered to ask the homeless man, dude, who do you say Jesus is? Well, you could phrase it another way, whichever way you want to, how you speak your slang with them, right? Jesus expects us to know what the bias about him on the street is. Not simply by watching YouTube videos or, or, or watching, you know, BBC. We have to know people. And we have to be able to ask them this question. It's the number one question we ask in evangelism. Who do you think Jesus is? The disciples do know the word of this, on the street about Jesus. Let's read verse 28. They give an answer. They don't live in a monastery. They have been in touch with the, with the people. And they say, uh, verse 28 says, And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. We might say public opinion about Jesus seems to be divided, almost as divided as the UK is currently over Brexit. Everyone has an opinion of what should happen about Brexit. And it seems everyone has an opinion here, doesn't it? About who Jesus is. Different names are being thrown out, right? The public seems to agree that Jesus has the X factor. They can see he says the right things. His miracles are wonderful. And God is with him. But they can't agree on who he actually is. Is he John the Baptist come back from the dead? Is he Elijah, one of the great prophets who is, is in heaven right now and went to heaven on a chariot, uh, as it were? Is he one of the prophets that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy? It could he be Jeremiah, we read in Matthew, that has also been suggested. They, they can't agree on who he actually is. And tragically, though, notice the key thing here is that their answers indicate that to them, Jesus, though he has the X factor, is only an extraordinary human being, nothing more. When you summarize all these answers, that's why it comes down to what their opinion is. No one says he's God here. <laughs> To them, Jesus, Jesus is better than us, but nothing more. This is tragic, isn't it? Because this should sadden us, because this is what our culture thinks about Jesus, but it should sadden us especially for us who have been going through Mark, isn't it? Because when I read this, the first thing that struck me is that these people have a lower opinion of Jesus than the demons do. If we do a quick sample of what the demonic community in Galilee are saying about Jesus, we get very different results. Let me just remind you. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus first encounters a, a, a demonic spirit, isn't it? Mark chapter 1, verse 23 to 24. Listen to the testimony of the demon about Jesus. And immediately there was a man, there was there in the synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out when he saw Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark chapter 3, we see another encounter between Jesus and the demonic powers. Mark chapter 3, verse 11, we saw this. He says that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down. And when we looked at this passage, we said they literally bowed down before Jesus and cried out, You are the Son of God. 
In Mark chapter 5, verse 6 to 7, we see Jesus coming out of the boat and immediately out of the tombs is, is met by the demoniac, isn't it? From the garrisons. Mark chapter 5, verse 6 to 7 says this, And when he saw Jesus from afar, this is a demonized man, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, huh? What have you to do with us, with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So the sample from the demonic community is way higher than the people think of Jesus. It is quite a thought, isn't it? That human beings in our sinful, rebellious condition are worse than, more blind than the demonic powers. How great is the darkness of man. We should note that, but the urgent issue for us is this. Do followers of Jesus, those who are with him, who congregate around him, who, who spend time with him in the church, do they really know who Jesus is? Well, let's find out in verse 29. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, I don't know how you picture this moment in your mind, right? It's, it's, as we read through Mark, you have to try and get into the narrative a bit, you know? Engage a bit of the imagination as it were. I don't know how you're picturing what's going on here. I, for myself, I'll just speak for myself, I imagine perhaps they're taking a straw into a village. And Jesus, while, you know, taking a straw with them, pops the question, doesn't it? Guys, who do people say I am while they are walking? I imagine everyone at that point is excited, right? All sorts of names are being mentioned, and then Jesus stops the walk. Guys, hold on. But who do you say I am? Everyone is stopped now, and is quiet. Who do you say I am? And in my imagination, I can see Judas Iscariot perhaps taking the first step to resume his walk. <laughs> He's trying to get away from not having to give his own answer. And I perhaps can imagine John is looking sheepishly down. You know, Simon the Zealot is nudging Tadeus a bit. You go first, you go first, you know, kind of thing. I'm just imagining, but I'm imagining there must be a sort of you go first looks here. But I'm just imagining. Uh, here is what Mark tells us actually happens next. Let's read on verse 29. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And here is the answer. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, based on what we know so far, we have to be honest, we are not surprised Peter opens his mouth first. What does surprise us, though, and probably surprises Peter himself, are the words coming out of his mouth. Peter, again, when we go through this, as William Lane says, you know, we must listen close to the text. We must have our ear to the text. Not assume we've, seen, we've heard this many, many times, and yes, yes, we've had so many sermons with this, but we must listen closely to the text. Because when you listen closely to this text... Notice that Peter does not answer the question as Jesus originally worded it. The question was, who do you say that I am? We expect Peter to start responding by saying, we say you are, 
Or we think you are. Because he's asking all of them, plural. So Peter should be answering on everyone's behalf. We, but Peter doesn't respond like that. But also, Peter doesn't say, Jesus, thanks for the question. This is just a guess. Uh, don't take it personal, right? Based on the evidence of the water walk and all that I've seen you be doing, I'm just beginning to think that you are the Christ. Am I right about that? Peter doesn't say any of that. This is not simply a response to the question. What we have from Peter is a declaration. He just says, you are the Christ. He has spoken with a power, clarity, authority that has come from almost beyond himself, really. God has touched the spiritual eyes of Peter to see and declare Jesus is the Christ. And according to the account of Matthew, Levi, Matthew, who was there, we know that Peter adds that Jesus is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we have to ask the question here, don't we? What does Peter mean when he says Jesus is the Christ? We know that Peter has received the glorious revelation from God. Jesus, if you like, has touched his eyes. And we know that this is what Mark has been leading up to. This confession, all the eight chapters coming down to this moment. But what does Peter mean? How does Peter understand it at that point? Well, Peter at this point believes Jesus is, of course, the long-awaited God's anointed leader. He knows Jesus is, is God the Son, so to speak, and he knows that God has entered at this point a human space, as it were, human experience. He has come, though, to serve Israel and establish through Jesus his kingdom of righteousness. Peter believes that. And yet we notice that even though Peter has given the right answer and what his belief about Jesus is correct, we see in verse 31 to verse 38 that Peter and the disciples still need to receive full sight, as we noticed this morning. Like the blind man of Bethsaida, though they see some truth of Jesus as the Christ, full trust in Jesus as the Christ, will need a second touch. Because Peter Laurent doesn't even seem to understand that the Christ will involve suffering, will involve him dying, him being buried, him being raised to life for our justification. The second touch that brings clear vision, therefore, as we saw this morning, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Which Jesus tells them about, doesn't it, in verse 30 to verse 31 there. Until Jesus, as I said this morning, rises from the dead, their confession, Peter's confession, the confession of the disciples as a Christ, though it is better than the people, it is still in a state of partial blindness. But the good news of man, beloved, is that we live on this side of the cross. We have seen Jesus die, buried, and risen. Therefore, our confession of Jesus as a Christ it, it, it must be a full confession, doesn't it? We must ask ourselves here, isn't it? What does it mean for us here in Bexley Heath? Individual people living here, what does it mean for us that Jesus is the Christ? We've got what we think Peter means, but we know what Jesus means, right? What does it mean to Jesus? What does it mean to us who live on this side of the cross that Jesus is the Christ? Well, the word for Christ is 
means anointed one, isn't it? Anointed one. And in the Bible, only three offices are anointed. Which ones? The first one is that only prophets were anointed. And then priests and kings, those were the only three offices that were anointed offices. So, confessing Jesus as anointed one is really confessing that Jesus occupies, has come as God, occupying these three offices before us. Prophet, priest, and king. Let's go through those three. Confessing Jesus as the Christ means first we believe Jesus is Christ, our prophet. Christ, our prophet. It is believing that Jesus is the only one who reveals God's will for our salvation. To believe Jesus Christ, Jesus is a Christ, our prophet, means we believe there is no other way for us to know who God is except through Jesus. Not Jesus, no revelation of God. And this is what John tells us, isn't it? In John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has made him known. Anyone who is looking anywhere else to know and access God does not, apart from Jesus, does not have Jesus as the Christ. If you are looking anywhere else to access God, apart from Jesus, you have no life with God. You are still dead in your sins. To have Jesus as to confess Jesus as the Christ is to confess him as our prophet. Secondly, confessing Jesus as the Christ means we believe Jesus is Christ, our priest. Jesus is the only one who enables us to have life with God. And therefore, to confess him as to the Christ, we must believe Jesus has come to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins, to pay the debt of blood that we owe God. The writer of the Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9, verse 24 to verse 26. It should be verse 24 there in your outline to verse 26. It says this about Christ. Christ, interesting, for Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, as our high priest. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The writer of the Hebrews is reminding us That anyone standing on anything else other than the blood of Christ shed on the cross for sin does not have Christ as our priest, as priest. They have no life with God. They are still dead in their sins. To confess Christ, Jesus as the Christ, is to confess him as our priest. Finally, confessing Jesus Confessing that Jesus is the Christ means believing in our hearts that Jesus is Christ, our King. Christ, our King. We confess that He is Lord over all, isn't it? He is Lord 
over all. Jesus is our only God, Lord and King, no one else. We must believe that Jesus is God coming to reign over us. That Jesus is fully God, possessing the infinite majesty and glory of God. Divinity covered with flesh. Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7 says this, isn't it? That is a, that is a, a, a prophecy of the anointed one. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will be a king, isn't he? To establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I can't get enough of this passage. I love it. Because it's reminding us, isn't it? That this God who is coming, Christ, is our king. Anyone who does not confess and truly surrender to Jesus as God and as king, cannot be part of the kingdom of God. This is why salvation in Christ, in Jesus the Christ, involves confessing these three offices. Do you see? You can't be a born-again Christian if you only believe Jesus is your priest. You must accept him as king, and you must accept him as a prophet as well. And this is the confession of Jesus as a Christ that all true followers of Jesus already have. And Mark wants us to keep confessing Jesus as the Christ. Now, we need to, we need to pause here, don't we? Remember what Mark, that Mark is writing this account for believers in Rome who are being tossed by Nero to wild animals. They are facing all sorts of persecution and brutality. Beloved, what do you think they are thinking as they are reading Peter's confession. What do you think is their demeanor? Are they weeping as they read this? Are they bored as they read this? What do you think? Are they jumping out perhaps as they read it? I was thinking about this. Remember their condition, right? I think the first thing that strikes them is where, first of all, Peter confesses Jesus. That's that's important. Where Peter has confessed Jesus. Where has he done it? Caesarea Philippi. Peter is confessing the Christ in a place, in a city that once gained its firm as a hub, the center for bell worship. It was called Balinius in the honor of the Phoenician God. He is confessing the Christ in a place which Greeks also revered. They called it Panias in the honor of their god of nature, Pan, a half-man, half-god, demonic creature. And according to Greek mythology, the birth of Pan took place in a cave from which sprang the waters of the river Jordan. So where Peter is confessing is not far from where the temple of Pan is. Peter is confessing the Christ in a place where Herod, the great, the, the father of Philippi, Philip, for whom the city is named after Caesarea Philippi, the Tetriarch, is confessing Christ in a place where Herod the Great has left behind the temple of worshipping 
of a temple of worship for the emperor Caesar Augustus. In Caesarea Philippi, there's a temple there where Caesar is worshipped. So we must see that Peter is making this confession of Christ in a place of deep darkness that opposes God. Why has God arranged this confession this way? Is it the gospel is not some randomly assigned, you know, uh, stories? Why is this happening here? Why does Mark mention that Peter makes this confession in Caesarea, Philippi? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Because God, through Mark, wants them and us to know that Jesus has no equals. Jesus is the Christ. He is the only prophet, only priest, and only king. He alone, not Pan, not Caesar, not Nero, persecuting them in Rome, deserves worship. Only the Christ. And so as they read these things, we gloss over things that bore us. As they are reading it, I imagine the first of the believers in Rome are in tears as they read this. As they read of Peter's confession, they would remember Peter was crucified upside down. And they now remember, they are now reminded of the confession that Peter held about Christ that drove him to that crucifixion upside down. And they're in tears. And I imagine they're actually saying along with Peter, you are the Christ. They are so encouraged to know that Jesus is Christ our prophet. They're so encouraged to know that they know the truth. They know that Christ is the sacred repository of all truth. They do not understand why they are suffering, but they know that Christ, our prophet, does. He possesses all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and truth, as Paul says in Colossians. They do not know everything about God, but they know that Christ is the beam of light by which God's being is manifested to their lives. They are encouraged that Jesus is Christ, our prophet. They are encouraged to know that Jesus is Christ, our priests, they know that in the middle of these afflictions they are facing, their prayers to God are being heard. Nero can catch them, but he can't block, block, block their prayers. Let me say that right. He can't prevent their prayers before God. And they know they will endure facing the terrible persecution of Nero because Christ, our priest, has shed his blood for them and is able to keep them in him. And they know that Christ, our priest, is interceding even now in heaven for them. So as they read this confession, they are so encouraged. And they know that no matter what Nero does, his pretensions to be the king, it is Christ, our king. It is Christ who is in charge. He has already defeated and crushed Satan for them. This confession of Peter is their confession. And if you are trusting in Jesus, beloved, this evening, it must be your confession. The thoughts of Christ as your prophet, as your priest, and as your king must be center of everything you do and your thoughts. It must be your confession in whatever situation you're in. If you are like me, you know that you're often tempted to forget that living for God is not about me. It is all about Jesus Christ. I forget that. There's only one Savior and I'm not Him. (laughs) And often my problems in all my life 
come down to forgetting that truth. I am not Jesus. And sometimes I try and do things thinking I can do them on my own, whether at home, whether in church, or wherever I'm found, in my own strength, forgetting I am not Him. He is the Christ. He is my prophet, my priest, my king. And, I, and we must remember this is what the, all of this is about. Why the Lord's table? Because Jesus Christ is what? Our priest. That's why we are here. Why this church? Because it's about him. Everything we do is about him. But we forget that, isn't it? And I bet you also forget that. Right? So this coming week, in whatever situation you, you are going to face, I just encourage you to meditate on this truth. Confess with Peter that truth. You are the Christ. Look to Jesus and just confess that truth before him. Ask God to remind you to keep confessing Christ, who he is in every situation. Preach that particular line to yourself. You see, when you stumble on something strange on YouTube that seems to question Christ, or when something bizarre happens in the world that seems to challenge the Bible, or whatever things you must, you, you, you're going to face. Well, confess that Christ is your prophet. Remind yourself of that truth. Remember that he alone is the sum of all knowledge. He alone is the truth. And without him, you are completely ignorant. The world is completely ignorant. When you stumble into some sin and Satan seems to have an upper hand, when he taunts you that God is tired of your many, your lukewarmness or your many weaknesses, beloved, confess Christ as your priest. Remind Satan that Jesus is standing before God as our sacrifice. His blood still washes away our sins. Remind Satan that our burdens have been lifted on cover. So there's no need to despair. There's no need to hide. We can take all our shame and sins to Christ, our priest. When you feel overwhelmed by life, when you start fearing for your future, when you're wondering, when is God going to give me a break? When will he just let me breathe? There are problems upon problems upon my life. Beloved, confess that Christ is your king. You live in his kingdom. You are not just a citizen of heaven. That's a great thing. Paul says it, we are. But you're not just that. The Bible also tells us that you are a joint heir with Christ to the throne of grace. We are princes and princesses in the kingdom of our Father. Priests unto our God, Paul tells us. A holy nation. You belong to all those things. And so your future has never been more secure. If you are trusting in Jesus, your future is already written, and it is glorious. You have in Jesus, as we've been learning in Second Peter, all that pertains to life and godliness. You have in Christ a complete Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. And may the Lord help us, not just as individuals, but as a church, to keep believing and confessing in every day that Jesus is indeed Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. Amen.